What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Tamim Fruchter, author of the novel City of Laughter. I feel brimming with questions, but what are they? And it feels like before you can get to answers, you have to be able to get to questions. Um, So in some ways, for me, this novel was a very selfish project of, are there questions I can even get to? We'll be back with Tamim Fruchter after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this. But this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote-unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. 
I think in this world, we have to support what we love. And there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers and become a supporter of first draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash first draft writers. And on to the show. My guest today is Tamim Fruchter, a queer non-binary writer who was raised in a modern Orthodox Jewish household. She holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Maryland and has received first prize in short fiction from both American Literary Review and New South. She lives in Brooklyn. Her novel, City of Laughter, opens in Rupschitz, Poland, where we meet an 18th century Jewish jester whose job it is to make wedding guests laugh. He receives a visit from a mysterious stranger that triggers a sequence of events that reverberate across centuries. In the present day, Shiva Margolin is recovering from the heartbreak of her first queer love in grieving the death of her beloved father. Shiva struggles to connect to her mother, Hannah, who is distant and will not share family stories with her daughter. Shiva is obsessed with family history and understanding her past, which motivates her to visit Poland, hoping to find answers about her mysterious great-grandmother and subsequent generations of women in her family. We began the interview with me asking Tamim Fruchter about the origin of her novel, City of Laughter. I think of the book as having two origin points, probably multiple origin points, but sort of two primary ones. The first is that I used to play music in a rock band and we were touring in Europe and we went to Warsaw and we went to Warsaw directly after spending several weeks in Germany. And there, it felt like there was this marked difference. Um, we went into Warsaw and things just felt a little warmer and people laughed more loudly and were more effusive. And it just felt more familiar to me um, in this way that didn't really make sense. I'm a Polish Jew, um, Polish and Russian, but I had never been there. But my family, my great grandparents are from a Jewish village uh, that no longer exists called Rupschitz. That was, you know, a few hours from Warsaw. And we took a drive there because, you know, it was important to me to, to be there and we got there and it was just, you know, road, grass, not like nothing so remarkable. And at the exact same time, I felt like this place is like charged with ancestors. Everyone is still here. I feel it. I feel all this like thick presence. And oh my God, there's nothing here. Like this is so anticlimactic. Um, and I kind of just really wanted to write into that duality because I think both things are true at once, right? Like, yes, I believe that everyone is still there. And also it's really not that simple. It's not that easy. It's not that accessible. You can't just always go back to the place your family came from and, and find everything you need, you know, kind of all in the same place. So I, I wanted to write a book that explored that um, sort of ambivalent way of being in relation to ancestry, indigeneity, sort of the narrative of finding yourself. It's not that simple. Um, and then the other origin for the book is really 
photographs of my maternal grandmother, who was a very private person. I loved her. We were we were fairly close, although, you know, she she was a little she was very private. So I didn't know everything about her. But old pictures of her, just she just looked so glamorous and so full of mischief. And as I grew up and grew into this sort of non-binary queer femme identity that I now embody, um, where sort of sartorial pleasures and adornments uh, are really central to how I express myself in the world, I started to feel more of a connection to her both aesthetically and just to those old photos. And I started to think, not what if my, you know, what if all my ancestors were secretly queer, because I don't necessarily think that's the case, but more like if they had been, I would never know, because there are so many erasures of queer and trans stories and um, so many ways in which they're hidden and coded. And so I just started to imagine, like, what if I gave myself permission to write a speculative history where they just all were? I think that's where the book began. Would you ever want someone to see your picture and say you were glamorous? I mean, sure, I'd take it. I mean, I think I hope people look at my pictures one day and think she was up to something, you know, in a good way. (laughs) What is the intersection for you of queer identity and thinking about your ancestry as being queer and the way you were raised as modern Orthodox? So, yes, I was raised as modern Orthodox, which in a lot of ways, is a very rigid, regimented way to be raised. There were a lot of rules and a lot of things I couldn't do, you know, things I wasn't allowed to do because of my family's religious practice. I think that my family in particular practiced a sort of what I like to call like more of a yes Judaism. Like, sure, we couldn't do the things that were prohibited, like eat cheeseburgers and go out on Friday night and stuff like that. But it was a very, like my mom, my dad is a musician. My mom is an art educator and an artist. And my house was always full of just tons of guests. And we always just had like hours long meals and singing and, um, the storytelling that really raised me. Some of it was this folklore that, um, I think really deeply formed my imagination sitting around Friday night everyone's sort of comatose from like eating too much chicken soup and my parents reading to us from folklore anthologies and just feeling like, wow, maybe this world is full of shape-shifting demons and kind of not really being sure what was real and what was possible and what wasn't. And I like to say that the fact that that confusion formed me at such an early age, I think has served me as a writer, but then also as a, as a queer person, First of all, I think for me, as you know, having grown up as such a rule follower, queerness served a very clear purpose for me. It was it was an answer to the rules. It was like as a rule follower, it's almost like I needed a container in which to start breaking those rules. And my queerness sort of allowed me this expansive sensibility to say, you know, both and like not everything is either or. Not everything is a binary. In fact, most things are not a binary. And and it allowed me to sort of ease into expanding out of that rigidity in which I had been raised. But I also think the sort of warm and expansive part of my Jewish upbringing really allowed me to quickly embrace what I like to call a queer and radical imagination. It's just 
imagining possibilities for myself, for my communities, for this world, you know, as an anti-Zionist Jew, like being able to have diasporic dreams and imagination. It just feels all very queer to me. It feels queer because it pushes against the norm. It pushes against sort of linear capitalistic expectations of, of, of the sort of way the world has been marching along and the way that we are sort of told, you know, the bounds of our world allow us to go. So I think queer imagination and queer possibility are really important to me. And I do think in some ways my upbringing kind of primed me to believe in things that seemed a little bit impossible. Did that make you less of a rule follower as an adult? I'm still a rule follower. I mean, I'm not like <laughs> I'm I'm also a rule breaker now, like both. And, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I'm you know, I'm anti-authoritarian and I I feel like I'm a true radical about many things. And at the same time, it's I, I sort of notice myself, you know, even in writing and craft, um, if there's a rule, I want to have a relationship to it, even if I don't follow it uh, sort of unquestioningly. Um, I want to know what the rules are so that I understand where I am in relation to them. And I 100% believe that that's because of my sort of scriptural upbringing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about rules in fiction. And I think maybe we'll start with just the form of your book. When I walked away from reading it, I felt like it was a collage. I felt like your novel was a collage of stories and form. So both the structure and the content, you had multiple stories going on at once, which isn't unusual. You know, you had different characters that you were highlighting different time periods, but you also would break in with a mysterious messenger who we can talk about the role of the messenger, who was sort of a narrator and a through line over generations. And you also would have a folk tale every once in a while. And there was a sort of a magical element sometimes to it. So wanted to ask you if that makes sense that I saw it as a collage and how, if you see it that way. It 100% makes sense. And I, yeah, I do see it that way. Someone the other day also described it as, as a quilt and that um, resonated with me too. The book was born in scraps, basically, in, in pieces, in sort of standalone parts. You know, I thought, oh, here are these episodes, here are these experiences, here are these mini folk tales. Oh, wait, here's a letter. Um, here's sort of a missive from this mysterious narrator figure. And at first I thought maybe this was going to be a collection of shorter pieces. And very quickly, I think the pieces demanded that I create a container for them that was sort of bigger than that or sort of more tied them all together. And so I, I did, I started stitching them together and that was new for me because I had only written really shorter form fiction before short stories and, and also essays and sort of hybrid work. But yeah, so I think collage feels really apt. I also thought about it, you know, in the world of metaphors I was thinking about as I was trying to decide what form this was. Um, is almost like of listening to the radio and you're sort of tuning into different 
frequencies and some of them are fuzzy and some of them come in clear. And so I think about these characters as being surrounded by all of these different frequencies. And sometimes one comes in extra clear and sort of interrupts the sort of a more linear contemporary narrative. And I liked thinking about it like that. That was permissive for me because I did want, I did want it to feel unusual. I did want it to feel sort of immersive and strange, but I also wanted it to cohere and feel like by the time the reader was finished with the novel, they felt like they had, they understood where they had gone, even if they couldn't describe every element of that. So it makes sense to me, your experience in Warsaw and being interested in your grandmother at the heart of this story, I think is these questions about our ancestry and what do we inherit When the book opens, I'm not really sure the year, it's in the 1800s, and you are focusing on this man named Baruch. I don't think he's doing very well in his career and in his his life in, in Poland, but he's a clown and he goes to weddings and he is like a jester. He performs and he is in love with um, a woman that he's not quite ready to marry and he's on his way to a wedding and at the wedding... He, he feels like he's not the best clown in the world, but he, he tries his best. And at the end of the wedding, he meets this mysterious visitor with very green eyes that takes him and kind of invites him to look at the moon and just was a sort of delivering something that he needed at the moment, which did change his life. He was able to then get married and, uh, you know, make the move to ask his girlfriend to marry him. And there was something very potent about this messenger that came, this mysterious figure that was a non-binary individual. And then the main part of the story is really their ancestors, Shiva, who is in her 20s, who's queer, who has a lot of questions about her mother and grandmother and great grandmother and her mother Hannah doesn't really tell her much about it so she's kind of on this quest to figure out her family history she feels uh, very greatly that something's missing in her life and these these stories she thinks are the key and it leads her to go to graduate school and go to Poland and on an academic search about maybe searching for questions that don't necessarily have answers or or maybe some of the answers lie in the questions themselves, something kind of esoteric. And so she's, it's kind of a journey story and we go back and forth between her and her mother and her grandparents and the ancestors maybe of this messenger, this messenger itself. And so at the heart of it for me was like this question about ancestry and what we inherit and can we live our lives when we feel like something's missing? Like, why do you think that's so important when we feel like something's missing and we can't identify it in our DNA? I mean, I don't know if it's important to everyone. I know it's important to me. Um, I, I know it's probably important to many people, but um, I've always just been a, a a very existential person. Like I have always felt very close to the void and sort of very close to sort of the edges of just a keen sense of what it means to be a person, which isn't to say like, that's not necessarily a, like a blessing. It's not necessarily like more profound than anything else. It's just, 
I experience the world as a very, like I'm very in touch with sort of existential questions all the time. So I wrote a character who was also that way. You know, I was figuring out some things by writing her that way. And I didn't know, you know, I've never known exactly what questions to ask. In some ways, I also relate to the fourth child in the Passover story who I invoke in the novel. It's like there are these four archetypal children, the wise, the wicked, the simple, and the one who doesn't know how or what to ask. And I've always been so fascinated by that. Like, the one who doesn't know how or what to ask, like, that's me most of the time. I'm, I feel brimming with questions, but what are they? And it feels like before you can get to answers, you have to be able to get to questions. Um, so in some ways, for me, this novel was a very selfish project of, are there questions I can even get to? But I think, too, like, your question about why is it important about sort of ancestry and what gets lost and what gets forgotten, I think it's just... I'm just aware of the limitations of my own human experience and the sort of walls of my body and um, the confines of the life I move through. And I know that there's, I know that there's more that surrounds me and that surrounds that. And I don't know if I'm meant or able to know what that more is like, you know, the sort of ghosts or ancestors or voices or frequencies or truths or mysteries um, that sort of, um, that sort of surround me, that sort of create the galaxy in which I live, but it feels like a worthwhile project while I'm here in this body, in this mind, in this heart, in this world to sort of explore, like what, what can we touch that we, that we don't know that we may have forgotten that our collective families or communities may have forgotten or that may have been taken from us. Um, you know, I'm especially moved by thinking about both queer and trans histories that have been forcibly erased or hidden, and also Eastern European Jewish histories that have been destroyed, um, obstructed, buried, burned. And I think often about, you know, I'm a I'm a white person. So in some ways, like the archives of our country and like in our culture often, you know, center white stories. And as a Jewish person and a, and a queer non-binary person, there are aspects of my story that have been systemically, you know, maybe, maybe kept from me or maybe kept from people in my family and community. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that too. It's important personally, but it's also important culturally um, and from just sort of a, a humanitarian and a social justice perspective to remind ourselves when we are storytelling that the less obvious stories are often less obvious because somebody has decided we're not meant to find them. Um, and so without overstating that in my own personal case, I do think my novel is concerned with what it means when stories are sort of taken away, how we can find our way back to them. And in, and in some cases, it's not through the archive. It's not through the sort of capital A archive, but it's through conversations and stories and speculation and taking walks somewhere your family once stood. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
So I mentioned that in the very beginning, Baruch meets this messenger that I think is in many ways the impetus for all the curiosity in this family and the impetus probably for exploring the the queer history that, that might have existed. So I wanted to ask you about the messenger, how you came to that, the role of that, and um, what you wanted it to function as in fiction? You know, in some ways, sort of just from a craft perspective, I was telling the story and I just realized like somebody, because it's, I think of the novel itself as a sort of folk, like a big folk tale um, or a collection of different folk tales that come together, somebody needed to be the storyteller. And, you know, I tried like so many other writers, I tried, you know, I tried some first person writing, I tried just some third person, like close omniscience. But I realized that this was the kind of story where somebody needed to know more than all of the other characters. So whoever was telling this story um, needed to have insight that they didn't yet. And that wasn't just a sort of invisible narrator. I thought somebody is carrying this. So I gave that job to the messenger and it was really fun to be able to sort of pop out sometimes and just have the messenger like, you know, step out into the spotlight and say a few things and then step back into the shadows and keep telling the story. I've always had a sort of inexplicable obsession with the Archangel Gabriel, who's known as the messenger. And, you know, at some point in my life, because of the kind of projection that, you know, we all do, I decided Gabriel was like queer and non-binary. You know, I mean, archangels are non-binary in my opinion, but I just thought of, I started to think of Gabriel as a very queer angel. And in, in writing this novel and working on this story, I started to think about this box of letters. And the idea of the box of letters became emblematic for me of this fantasy that I and many of my friends have that like somewhere in some attic, there's this like perfectly preserved romantic correspondence between your ancestor and some mysterious figure. I mean, it's it's a writer's dream for sure. Like, you know, you you come across some archive, some long lost archive that reveals a secret about your family. And like, who, I mean, who gets that? Some, some of us do, but I'm not going to get it. All right. If we had an attic, it would be too messy anyway for me to find it. Um, but this box of letters. So I just started thinking about letters and who delivers letters and messengers and couriers. And then I thought about Gabriel, who I'd been trying to write about. You know, I'd written Gabriel into short stories and just tried all of these different ways to lean into that obsession. And then I thought, okay, like this is a place where a sort of shape shifting, queer, sort of elusive messenger has a role to play. And a messenger who I believe isn't only pious, but is sort of unruly themselves, you know, because I think if the messenger's job was purely to just carry the story, that's one thing. But a messenger, much like a translator, like that's not a neutral role, at least in this story. So that's where the messenger came from. And then I started researching the playwright S. Onski, the playwright of the Dybbuk, which also plays a pretty big role in the novel. And I didn't know at first that there is a character in that play called the messenger who is the narrator and whose role is to signify that something otherworldly is afoot. Um, and I just loved that. I just, I was so excited by that sort of synchronicity. So 
the messenger, I think, grew in their centrality as the as the novel developed. I love how that happens in writing. I don't know if it's happened to you a lot where, you know, you alight on this concept of the messenger and then you go back to this other play that you've been thinking about and you realize like the way things align. And have you had that happen to you a lot in your writing life? I think I have. I don't know that I can think of a specific example, but I have had these sort of synchronicities. And sometimes I really do think of them as, you know, sort of a kind of magic I can't understand. And sometimes it just is a reflection of these obsessions that, you know, we have as writers and artists that maybe they're unconscious and we don't realize that we're reading about one thing over here and thinking about this other thing over here. But I I mean, that delights me so much. It delights me so much because it sort of, it sort of strengthens the core of the, like almost the imagination of the novel itself um, becomes richer because the idea of a messenger, for example, is coming from multiple places now. It's not it's got, it's got multiple strands and, and that feels rich and exciting to me. Do you feel that outside of your writing life? Like, do you see that that happens that, you know, you mentioned like when you're obsessed with things, like maybe you can see the connections more clearly, but that the universe is also more connected than we think if we're looking in the right way? I believe that for sure. I mean, I was working on a section about the character Syl, who's a bird watcher. Um, I personally like love birds and think they're beautiful, but I don't know very much about them. And I was working on a section about her and I went for a walk and I passed by this tree that was full of birds. And this guy just like turned to me and he was like, Hey, like, do you know, he asked me like a very specific kind of question about the birds in the tree. And it was just such a little thing. But I was like, is there something about me right now that screams like I know a lot about birds because I've been immersed in this world? I I mean, I live for that stuff. I really I really do. You know, I also have a a very dear friend who um, is a musician who I've sort of collaborated in different ways with over the years. And sometimes we'll find we are, um, you know, in this book I wrote specifically about curlews. which were a bird who I learned about who sort of um, move and talk in a collective and also are, you know, according to articles about them, impossible to sex. And so I thought I wanted to center this sort of non-binary bird. And this friend of mine, it turned out, was also writing about curlews. And so I think, too, those synchronicities across like art practices and across like imaginations and conversations I'm having with friends that sort of turn into strands in our work. I don't know. It just makes me feel like the universe is, is, is up to good mischief and a more wondrous place than, than we can always tell. What do you think there is in the Jewish sensibility about these folk tales and plays that you included? Do you see a common thread? You incorporated them into the book and you said you had a lot of them growing up. And I'm wondering if you have any sort of thematic or spiritual thing that you think is pushing them? There, I mean, there's so much, but I think folktales to me feel full of longing. They feel like a tool for survival in a lot of ways, a tool against forgetting. You know, the way that folklore is in many cultures, it's, it's a way to sort of remember what's important, 
both, you know, in a sort of lofty way and in a very sort of domestic everyday way, like little superstitions and warnings and reminders and, and even gossip all the way up to the very lofty ideas about God and what values are important and how, you know, we survive as a people. And I think they are portable, you know, as like a diasporic people, I think Jews have um, carried them with us. I think something very important to me about the Eastern European Jewish folklore I'm most familiar with is that it is at once so sinister and deeply weird and also like funny and like full of joy. And, you know, not unlike fairy tales and many other kinds of folklore, like there's a really, really serious dark side. Like it is not, a lot of these folk tales are not like, you know, light and fluffy. And I think that's important too. You know, there is this Yiddish idea that I invoke in the novel that's, that sort of means like laughing into crying and that humor and irreverence are, humor and irreverence and also joy are just the opposite side of the coin of sort of grief and hardship and struggle. And I think that something about these kinds of stories really encapsulate that for me, this longing for, for magic, for journeying, for, you know, a, a stranger coming through town who's going to change everything. And also just really being in touch with the reality that like sometimes things are bleak and sometimes things are hard and what we have to carry us through our stories and sort of reminding each other what's possible. Yes, I felt like storytelling was such um, a theme of the book, like was just about the stories we tell and how they influence our lives and also how they shape us and our families. I mean, part of what I see, I think, in the way that Hannah behaved and that's Shiva's mother and not telling her about her family and keeping things inside have to do with some superstitions, with some fear of God, which are stories. I mean, I guess in the end, when you learn about how you're supposed to behave as an Orthodox Jew, they're really told to you in, in story. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious about, I think the, the part of the queerness that you were saying originally, and also how we can advance maybe beyond what we're told and beyond our own fears is to rewrite our stories. And there's maybe a realization that you have to come to, to understand that. And there's a point in the book where Shiva is in Poland and she goes to visit a bunch of scholars and she visited one. I think it was Leora. She visited a few. So, and I think Leora was telling her that in order to find what you're looking for, you have to kind of buck the tradition and that you, but you can also be traditional at the same time that, that in orthodoxy is room for unorthodoxy and and that in itself is orthodoxy you know I, I will say that my youngest sister is a um what's called a maharat um which is she's functionally a rabbi but in orthodoxy they don't call women rabbis yet i you know i hope and I, I 
think they will soon. But um, so my sister started her own congregation. And I mention this because she is Orthodox and she's very much bucking many traditions every day just by being a woman who started and and runs her own, you know, huge synagogue community is always a reminder to me, you know, as someone who doesn't, who no longer identifies as Orthodox, there are so many people within Orthodoxy who are still figuring out how to live inside of those traditions and buck them at the same time. And actually, um, one of the figures who my sister cites as a real inspiration is the maiden of Ludomir, who I um, who I also invoke in the novel, um, who was this woman who Anski was also fascinated by, who never married and who was a great scholar and just sort of almost seemed possessed by this, um, you know, she had visited, it, it's told that she was visit, visiting her mother's grave and she sort of fell to the ground. And then after that, refused to marry and became like one of the, one of these great rabbinic scholars, even though she was a woman. And I think too, you know, this idea of demon possession, you know, as it's called, but sort of like being possessed by something. um, I think during that time, so many people and particularly women and particularly women who behaved unorthodoxly were, um, were stigmatized in this way that was like, oh, they're possessed. You know, I think that, I think that was something that really happened. Like they're possessed, they're touched, there's something off about them, whether it's in Jewish tradition or whether it's they're hysterical, you know, they're, you know, just sort of using mental illness to dismiss women who are, who behave like women, quote unquote, aren't supposed to. And so I thought about that too, about like, you know, there's a chance that people really used um, this concept of being possessed, not literally, but like, you know, as a woman possessed by desire, as a woman possessed by a real drive to study in the way that only men were allowed. Like, how did you strategically use your position and and the folklore of that time to um, to become what you really wanted to become? And even if it wasn't conscious, sort of looking back from a contemporary perspective and, and being able to see really clearly, like, of yes, the, like the woman, you know, I write about Mira, for example, um, the oldest woman in this lineage, like sure she was possessed, um, by a lot of things, but that doesn't mean, you know, she was possessed in the way that, you know, perhaps the, the townspeople of her town would have said she was, or that, Um, you know, she needed an exorcism to be better. Like, I think, you know, it was possible even during, even in these more strict communities and even during these stricter times to be very unorthodox. And it's just about how people experienced themselves and how other people experienced them and how we tell those stories years later. Your parents got some self-possessed rebels. (laughs) Yes, they did. (laughs) perhaps not what they were expecting, but I think they're proud of us regardless. You mentioned Mira and she was um, someone who basically, because she laughed a lot and maybe was just a little bit off center, um, but in a beautiful, unique way, but was basically silenced by her father. And he essentially took her voice away. And that was the struggle of her life and something that Hannah really digs into and comes to learn through her research, if I'm characterizing this correctly. And 
I'm wondering if you want to say anything about that, but what it makes me think about is like one of her manifestations was she laughed and she laughed. And part of what you're also saying when you visited Warsaw was that it was a lighter place and that this town is called the city of laughter. So also wanted to ask you about the role of laughter. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, so I have a very loud laugh, like to the point where like, you know, I was, when I went to my MFA program, for example, every, people would come up to me and say, when you laugh at a reading, I know I can laugh because it's just so loud. It's so extra. And so I don't think there was a time when I was really embarrassed about that, but I've, I've been aware of it for a long time. And when I learned about this concept of these Jewish wedding gestures called badchens, um, I didn't, I didn't know about those existing until recently. And I learned that there is a very famous one who comes from Rupshitz, where my great grandparents are from. I thought that's so, um, pun intended, that's so funny, like that the place that I, you know, from which I descend is known for this, this art of making people laugh. And that was another sort of root of the book, honestly, was just thinking, what, what would it mean to create a whole mythology around laughter specifically? And that there's this place known for its laughter that might've also gone through a lot of hardship and really needed to laugh. Um, and that results four generations later in a, you know, a really not subtle queer person who laughs very loudly in public. Um, so I think like thinking about laughter is almost a stand in for, for queerness, for difference, um, for not being willing to hide or, um, repress oneself. And I just, I wanted to think about how that would look different on someone living at that time in that place. And I also, it was interesting to start to think of laughter as almost a, almost something elemental, like it becomes a weather system. It becomes something you can carry. I think I was interested in coming up with a material that felt particularly queer and particularly Jewish. And, um, that would externalize something that felt precious and important to the people in this book. And that was um, sort of really carried from one place to another. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I love, I love to laugh. I love humor. I love, um, I love play and mischief. And so it was really fun to create a world in which laughter was something very consequential. Part of Shiva's journey, and I think at the heart of the book also, is this idea of, you know, questions that we don't necessarily find answers to, and that inherent questions are some answers, and that having open questions without fully answering them is its own answer. And that was part of her journey. And it sounds like in some ways that was also part of yours, that you had, you know, these roots of the book, the origin of, of Warsaw and the origin of your glamorous grandmother. And I'm wondering, and your own mysteries about your family, if you answered any of them or where you came out at the end versus where you were at the beginning. I don't think I answered anything. <laughs> um, I think... 
I mean, I feel like it's a common Jewish joke to just talk about how like you, it's both a joke and a, and a truth that like you answer a question with another, another question. Um, but I do think in some ways, you know, I think about, um, the Talmud, for example, which is, you know, a Jewish, an ancient Jewish text that is very, it's sort of a hypertext, you know, it's like there's, there's a middle text and then you can follow that middle text to the marginal text and this marginal text to this other marginal text. It's a collage fun, you know, fundamentally it's, it's a collage of different opinions and questions and more questions. Um, I am in no way comparing my novel to the Talmud, but I do think the same way that that is a text that is both touted as just a really central place to look when you're when you're struggling with like a Jewish legal question or a um even like a Jewish sort of moral question. I feel like if not an answer, the novel for me feels like a compendium of like affective states, images, yearnings, um, evocations, uh created memories, et cetera, that like became something that I can now hold that feels like not an answer, but like a contribution to the lineage that, I don't know, it feels like, it almost feels like an accumulation, right? Like here's all this stuff, nothing is conclusive, but something about putting it together, like collaging it, as you said, um, makes it into something formidable enough to feel like um, I'm less alone with these questions or these questions have a, like a lyric form or a shape or a container that um, helps helps me feel closer to something like an answer. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yes, I would love to. So one of my favorite writers who is also a friend um, is writer Marie Helene Bertino. Um, she, her debut novel is this book called 2AM at the Cat's Pajamas. And I have some writers who I just keep their books by my writing desk because I consider them to be con companion books. Um, so I dip into them when I want to just like embody a certain spirit in my writing that I think that that writer does very well. And Marie, like almost no other writer I know, is so good at sort of playfully but sharply creating a world that is at once like weird and so familiar and just deeply magically possible. So I'm going to read a passage uh, toward the very end of this book that I love. It is dark at 7 a.m. on Christmas Eve, but the sun, having no options, is returning to the city. It's asking the wrought iron fire escapes, the hydrants, what did I miss? It's occurring like a memory to the buildings of the financial district. It's lighting half of Mrs. Santiago as she rises, Mrs. Santiago waxing. She points out a tugboat in the river, dew-colored jalousies. She can see the rooftop murals only the L riders can see. If you were here, I'd be home now. Can she imagine a better morning? 
Would she change any part of it, even if she could? She tells the birds, the cat, the love letter, the stubborn sliver of moon that she cannot, she would not. A voice that seems to swell from the earth's core delivers the happy news. Her husband is dead, but she is alive. Like the pale ashes that curl and launch from the barrel fires on 9th Street, she is fettered by nothing. Do you want to say anything else about it? I just, I, I love the point of view. Um, sort of, it's like, I feel like we're, it's a little bit galactic. Um, it's also just like we're deeply in Philadelphia. It's very gritty, everyday detail. And it's also very um, magical. Everything is possible. And that's what I just love and look for in a, in a story. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like? Yeah, so I, I gave this one some thought and um, I think something I'm I'm proud of that I struggled with a little bit was, um, you know, we were talking about the Dybbuk and in the novel toward the end, I actually wrote a scene where I staged the Dybbuk in a sort of experimental way. Now, I've never like written for the stage or done anything for the stage. So that was like a little bit tricky. So I'll read I'll read a little bit of that part. Um, this is in a theater in Warsaw. The curtains rose to reveal the entire cast standing behind a sheer screen, rendering a crowd of moody silhouettes under the opalescent blue stage lights. Gravestones jagged up from the stage floor, and at stage left, a creeping pizzicato arose from a small string section, the only sound for a long while. The music dissipated abruptly, and out walked the messenger. She was tall and cloaked, her hair tied back behind a long, pinched face. An unsettling plainness to her expression, and yet a near supernatural ferocity in her eyes. She looked out at the audience unflinching. When she spoke, her voice sounded milky and thick, uncommonly low. It was unlike any voice Shiva had ever heard. Zwischen zwei Welten, said the messenger, a quiet firmness in the Yiddish words. It wasn't a line from the play. It was Ansky's alternative title for it, Between Two Worlds. Zwischen zwei Welten, more insistent now. Zwischen zwei Welten, and again, Zwischen zwei Welten. Words tumbled into words, and presently the assembly of silhouettes behind the sheer curtain joined the messenger in a hypnotic, amusical chorus. Zwischen zwei Welten, they said, and the words rose blue from the graves like incantations. The chanting intensified, a collective, focused growl, until it sounded certain and piercing, like a rallying cry. Zwischen zwei Welten, zwischen zwei Welten, zwischen zwei Welten. Underneath the chanting, the strings began to plink and swell again, a melody whose mournfulness was nearly beautiful, but ultimately dissonant, displacing, slightly off-kilter. Do you want to say anything else about that? Just that, you know, I, I'm grateful that my editor pushed me to, to stage it more. You know, I think I had in earlier versions, I had Shiva um, experiencing this play, um, but to sort of come up with this vision of staging a version of the Dybbuk that would be choral and what that would mean and what it would look like was, I think, really brought, um, brought something new to life for me in the story. Where do you write? I mostly write at this desk at which I am currently sitting. You know, I have a, a corner chair that I also write in. Um, before the pandemic, I wrote much more often in coffee shops, and I've started dipping my toes back into that a little bit too, but um, mostly just my trusty old writing desk. 
where do you go or what do you do to get away from writing? I love to take walks. I love to go hiking. I have I'm lucky to have a partner who's very outdoorsy. So uh, we go hiking together. We go running. I mean, they're very much more speedy than I am, but we set out for a run together. And then other than that, I love to cook. I love I love this sort of central experience of cooking. I can't be writing while I'm doing that. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm very lucky to have a writing group that I've been with since uh, basically since the pandemic began, um, virtual writing group. So I show them um, and my partner and my best friend are also very generous early readers as are my siblings. So I feel quite rich with with readers. How have you dealt with rejection? Honestly, um, sometimes more healthily <laughs> than others, but I think my my best way to cope with rejection is just plunging myself into what's next. And what is your favorite word? That feels like a really unfair question, but <laughs> one word I love is I love animal animal descriptors. And I think my favorite one is vulpine because I love a fox. Thank you so much for talking to me. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. If you like today's show with Tamim Fruchter, author of the novel City of Laughter, check out my interview with Gary Steingart. We talked about his novel Lake Success, taking a Greyhound bus across America, and writing about a wealthy character. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 450 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Tommy Orange, Deborah Spark, and Kylie Reed. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.